0: are watching. That is a warning to not let your kids end up on the magic island. I knew it all along. Advice on how to masturbate less. It tickles the imagination. God is a supercomputer.
1: Is this bullshit? Welcome to the Irrational Discourse Podcast. This is the continuation of our existential risks episodes on to asteroids and the potential threat they pose to humanity i'm here with my co-host chris hey hey and this is one that we carried on from uh, the last one on we did on nuclear war nuclear weapons and because the after effect of asteroid impacts in many ways is very similar to the the fallout and uh, or the ramifications of all-out nuclear war I kind of felt that it segued good into uh, being the next episode
0: Being with the asteroids. Being with the asteroids. The big impact.
1: Yes. Armageddon, deep impact. Deep.
0: Oh, God, yeah. Don't forget (laughs) about the deep impact. Those poor underground people.
1: Well, the the lizards? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen one yet, but I'm waiting. Yes.
1: So on asteroids, I've also been... I mean, I think everybody likes the the Armageddon-type movies. And by Armageddon, I don't mean the movie Armageddon, but... I mean, in this case, it's it does apply on, you know, the end of the world and the the threat and what can we do to stop it or... Or what would you do if you knew the, the world was going to end tomorrow? And you, or you, yeah, you had a couple months to live and yeah, what would you do in your last moments in life? Yeah. Besides running around in a panic and screaming?
0: Sure. Yeah. Party like it's 1999. That's right.
1: <laughs> or 2029 20, if Apophis hits. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see. As with the nuclear war episode and with several other episodes that we did, I have a lot of just background information on, you know, from what is an asteroid and a meteorite all the way to how many are there and, you know, where are they located and probabilities and then we can get into what kind of damage can uh, a potential impactor cause depending upon its size and velocity
0: mm, yeah well we could do got to define these things yeah. yeah what is an asteroid what is
1: a meteor so there's a common misconception i mean so an asteroid is just that it's just a it's a small relatively small chunk of rock uh, that's that's orbiting in most cases it's it's uh, orbiting the sun there are several different locations that we have for a bulk of the asteroids in our solar system but then you have a comet mm yeah comet is primarily um, ice and dust.
0: Ice, yes. As
1: opposed to uh, an asteroid, which can be either all rock or have like an iron-nickel core. And the, the other interesting thing is that most asteroids are really uh, flying rubble piles. Rubble. Yeah. So you have, you know, if you have a nickel, nickel-iron core and there's enough mass and it collects enough dust and rock, it has its own gravity and it'll hold a lot of the rock and it, it's basically that it is very tightly compact. But it is a relatively loose collection of smaller stones that have all formed together into one larger asteroid.
0: Now, are they usually made up of like the same clusters of stuff? Or are they all like a treasure trove of different things?
1: No, they're typically the main it's just space, dust, debris, rock that's you know you that's don't
0: all formed. Get the random one that's like, oh, it's made of pure gold.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but there is there is a lot of a lot of resources, gold, you know, other types of metals that are high value uh, on Earth, mm-hmm. and uh, you know there's been a lot of talk about actually. Well, we saw it in the Expanse where they were mining asteroids, right? Yes, and. Actually, if we ever become an interplanetary species, then most likely we will not be transporting the necessary minerals, say, to a Martian colony. Mm -hmm. It would be easier for them to catch an asteroid and either mine it and drop the material to the planet, which is dangerous because then you have an impact. Yeah. But it's a lot closer to mine an asteroid Mm -hmm. than it is to try to lift off 100,000 pounds of iron from Earth and... And take it over
0: there. (laughs) And take it over there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the uh, the energy that it would take to yeah do such a thing.
1: Yeah, with well, the fuel and you know future
0: technologies, I'm sure yeah. we'll figure it out. Yeah, totally. I yeah. was just about to ask, like, do you have some calculations like on that by chance?
1: No, we're waiting for the uh, AGI to come along and tell us how to do it all. Yeah, okay. Or to do it all for us. <laughs> we can discuss that in our next episode. Mm. And then there are meteoroids. So a meteoroid is, it's easy enough to remember, it's basically a, a piece that's broken off from a larger asteroid. Okay. And then you have a loose, smaller item that's flying through space. If it enters the Earth's atmosphere, it becomes a meteor.
0: Okay. That's what the de- definition of meteor is, if it enters the Earth's atmosphere. That's where you
1: see meteor showers. I see. Okay. And if it impacts Earth, it's a meteorite. Okay. A lot of them cool. don't impact. They they come in, they hit the Earth's atmosphere, and then they end up burning up, or you know, so much pressure and from the heat builds up on the inside that they basically explode, and it's just fragments of dust. Hmm. Cool. And there's a lot of it. So Earth travels Earth travels along its uh, orbit around the sun at a rate of about sixty-seven thousand miles per hour, and you know our our sun is moving along in its orbit of the. Of the galaxy in the galaxy, and it's running in the center. galaxy of the galactic center, or the black hole in the center at about 200 and some thousand miles per hour. So we have a lot of relative momentum uh, going, but in our solar system, hmm. we plow through 50 to 100 tons of dust and debris every single day. Wow, yeah, you know, just because it's out there, it's in the way, and we're churning we're and burning through, space, yeah, yeah, churning <laughs> and burning, yeah, yeah, churning and burning. But in 2018, you know, you know, not long before Stephen Hawking passed away, uh, he considered an asteroid collision to be the the greatest looming threat to our planet. Interesting. So it's something that it's garnered more and more attention, especially as we learn more and more about our solar system and you know the potential threats and the tracking, and we'll we'll touch on some of those. But there are four. Now we'll say there's five primary locations in our solar system for asteroids and comets. Hmm. The first of those is the main asteroid belt. And the main asteroid belt orbits between uh, Mars and Jupiter. They estimate that there's tens to hundreds of millions of asteroids in in the main asteroid belt. Uh, There's about uh, two million in the belt that are estimated to be larger than one kilometer. If we want to give that some kind of perspective, yeah, the the Chicxulub crater, the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs 66 million years ago, was around 10 kilometers.
0: 10 kilometers, okay.
1: So in the main asteroid belt, we have identified 1.1 million asteroids and have identified and are cataloged them and are tracking them. But based on the ratio of what we've discovered so far, it's estimated that, uh, yeah, there's possibly 2 million that are one kilometer and larger. Wow. Interestingly enough, so... Ceres. Remember Ceres Station? Yes. Yeah, from The Expanse? Yeah. So Ceres is one of the largest, or it is the largest known asteroid in the main asteroid belt. In fact, I think in the last decade or so, it's been declassified as an asteroid and is now considered a small dwarf planet. It's around 900 miles, 900 kilometers, so you know just over 500 miles. Or, no, it's greater than 500 miles in diameter, so yeah.
0: And so it's uh, rotating... The around the sun or in the asteroid?
1: It's in the asteroid belt, rotating oh, yeah. around the sun. So yeah. the the asteroid belt is in orbit around the sun. Yeah, uh, it's in a um, it's in a plane uh, just outside of Mars's orbit. To the sun, yeah. So you got cool. Ceres. Uh, Vesta is another large asteroid. And, and by the way, the reason that Ceres is considered a, a small dwarf planet instead of a asteroid hmm. is because it is large enough that its gravity forced it into a spherical shape.
0: Oh, cool! Wow.
1: Yeah it takes it takes a certain amount of mass to do that. But once once uh, an, an object gets enough mass, it forms into a sphere.
0: Yeah. Just compresses itself into that perfect shape. Right, so cool.
1: And Vesta is the second largest one. It's it is an asteroid. It's still greater than three hundred miles in diameter.
0: Holy shit!
1: It's massive. Holy crap! I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Palace is also greater than three hundred miles in diameter, and and there's also Eros. I believe was sixteen kilometers. I need to look that up. I'm going off memory. So there was also Aero Station in the expanse. And that was the one that, who was the, who was the, uh, the cop? Miller. Miller. Mm Yeah. That's the one that Miller and Julie ended up riding all the way to. Oh, was the Eros. Yeah. That was the Eros asteroid. No, like God of sexual
0: desire or something like that.
1: Well, that was what was ironic about it. So Eros was the, was the God of love and ended up crashing into Venus.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: Which was Aphrodite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there are tens and mil- tens of millions of asteroids in the main asteroid belt estimated to be, be between um, 100 meters and, a, and one kilometer.
2: So wow. it's still a nice size. Yeah,
0: and so just to like recheck that to the one asteroid or the one meteorite that uh, wiped out the dinosaurs was 10 kilometers
1: yeah it was an asteroid uh, before I, it was estimated to just be an asteroid Dite. that was around 10 kilometers six miles in diameter 66 million years ago yeah wiped out basically 75 percent of all species on the planet
0: wow okay and so wow yeah that's a lot of um Near-death experiences just kind of floating around out there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> What's interesting is that there are 150 identified asteroids that have small companion moons.
0: Wow. What?
1: <laughs> yeah. So an asteroid is, ha, a large asteroid can have enough mass that it actually will s- capture a smaller asteroid in a close orbital path around the sun. And then that small asteroid will orbit the larger asteroid.
0: That's amazing. Vacuums are so cool.
1: And there's also they've identified binary asteroids and, and a triple asteroid system. So wow. It, it, you know, the, the only difference between an asteroid uh, having a small companion moon and a binary um, asteroid is that in a binary asteroid system, both asteroids are very similar in size.
0: Like rotating each other. And so. they
1: rotate around each other. Yeah. And it's in a, a triple asteroid system would be three mm-hmm. that are kind of orbiting around each other. Mm-hmm. Yes, in the vacuum of space. It's crazy. Wow. There's another type of asteroid uh, besides the main asteroid belt. You have uh, Trojan asteroids. What? And Trojan asteroids um, orbit around either the L4 or the L5 Lagrange point of planets. Lagrange points are weird. Yeah, what is this? So a Lagrange point is a gravity well that is created when you have a large body such as a planet and the sun. And the, the planet is orbiting around the sun. There will be five Lagrange points, five gravity wells that, that form around it. And it's kind of where the sun's gravity and the Earth's gravity, it's at the nexus where you find a sweet spot that you don't move. You don't, you don't, you're You not getting pulled towards the sun. You're not getting pulled, pulled towards Earth you're kind of just getting pulled towards that gravity well as it moves around the planet wow. as it as it moves with the planet's orbit yeah so i'm going to get it backwards but i think the l4 lagrange point is in front of the planet's orbit path okay the l5 is behind it there are l1 l2 and l3 so the l1 is closer to the sun from the planet so it's on the it's on i should say it's on the sun side of the planet the L2 is on the far side of the planet from the sun. And then the L3 is kind of... Uh, it, it's not used or considered to be used for anything. It's actually on the opposite side of the sun from the planet. So if you drew a line from that intersected the sun and the planet, it would be on the opposite side of the sun from the planet itself. Okay. It's the It, the, it really is a, a weird phenomena it is. Um, in
0: gravity. It's reminding me of... Um... Like the phenomenon, like if you, like parachuters, you know, can be falling from the sky and there's like those sweet spots in the air current where you're not necessarily falling because there's like an updraft. Uh, I mean, you still it's, you're seeing uh, the gravity's pull, but there's a resisting force. And in this case, it would be other gravity. It, it gravities. would be, it'd be
1: gravity from another body. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. It's very similar in concept to that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We recently launched the James Webb Telescope, I believe it was, uh, either very, early, it was it was earlier this year, we launched uh, that telescope to the L2 Lagrange point, which is, I think it's one to one and a half million miles, maybe it's one million miles on the other side of the moon. And so when you say on L2. The, uh, further than the yeah, moon.
0: Yeah, this, so this is out in the asteroid belt.
1: No, it's not that far, because the asteroid belt is 100 to 200 million, to 200 million miles from Earth. Okay. So it's on the other side of Mars. The L2 Lagrange is about a million miles further out than the Earth or than the Moon's orbit. Okay. So it's well well before uh, the main asteroid belt. Okay. But it sits out there, and the reason that they use uh, Lagrange points is because the satellite can orbit the Lagrange point, and it doesn't have to constantly use fuel to, to maintain it. its orbit with Earth because the L2 Lagrange point moves follows earth's orbit around the sun.
0: That's amazing.
1: There there is so L L1 L2 and L3 are unstable Lagrange points, which means that Every twenty to twenty-three days, uh, the telescope will have to do minor course corrections. But because it doesn't have to do it all the time, they're estimating that it could be out there and operational for ten years or longer.
0: Wow, that's awesome. Do you know? I mean, I imagine that the stuff is like mostly solar powered, right? Like for a well, lot a lot of the electronics
1: are, but to to actually do course corrections, it it needs it, air. it needs it needs the fuel.
0: The fuel, yeah. Yeah,
1: to perform minor course corrections. Yeah. Um. Trojan asteroids are objects that have fallen or become trapped in the orbit of the Lagrange points of a planet. Oh wow. So it would be the L4 or L5 Lagrange points either either ahead of or behind the Earth's or the planet's orbital path. So as the planet is orbiting the sun, its L4 and L5 Lagrange points move continuously and the asteroids that are orbiting that Gra- Lagrange point continues to move along with the planet as well in, the, in, in an orbit around the Lagrange point.
0: That is so crazy.
1: Imagine Earth's orbit going around the sun mm-hmm. and ahead of it by you know a few million miles, there's a gravity well that stays that distance away from Earth continuously. And then you have an, an asteroid that's orbiting, orbiting, orbiting that gravity that well. Wild. It is wild. Jupiter has millions of Trojans. What? Well, imagine that, you know, the the gravity of the sun is quite strong. Jupiter has the strongest gravity of any planet in our solar system. So you can imagine it's got some pretty strong L4, L5 Lagrange points.
0: It's like they're like little static wells around the big planet bodies.
1: Yeah, and actually some of Jupiter's moons uh, have a couple Trojan asteroids orbiting their Lagrange points. Wow. Because there's the Lagrange points that are created by the gravity um, between the moon of Jupiter and Jupiter itself. It it really is bizarre. Yeah, it is. Uh, So Mars and Neptune have identified Trojans. I don't believe they've identified—they haven't identified any for any of the other planets. Except in 2010, asteroid 2010 TK7 was uh, discovered as Earth's first Trojan. What?! Yeah, so it's it's orbiting, I believe, the L4 Lagrange point, our L4 Lagrange point. It has this crazy, erratic orbit where it's sitting there spinning like a slinky and a spiral ahead of us as we orbit the sun, and it's just spinning around ahead of us, around our Lagrange point as we Wild. orbit. Wild.
0: As you know, is this the kind of thing where, like, over a long enough period of time, it... Its orbit gets so erratic that maybe it gets flung out from it. So it's or been is monitored. Like stable. It's
1: very stable as far as they know today, unless it's interacted upon by another object. Or mm. they, they've been tracking since 2010, and they have it pretty well established out, I think, for the next 100, 150 years cool. on what it'll do. So right now it's around 50 million miles ahead mm-hmm. of us. I think the closest that will come uh, in the next 100 years will be about 15 million miles. Wow. And then it might go out again. But yeah, it's...
0: It's, it's okay. It's okay.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're not worried about it. Near-Earth objects are the third category, and and they're a little bit more of a concern because a, a near-Earth near, near Earth object isn't always near Earth. Okay. These are asteroids that are in orbit around the sun at a distance of being around 85 to 110, 120 million miles from the sun. And we're tracking near-Earth objects. We as a, you know, NASA has a, a as group. As a people. That, yeah. As a people. We as a people. We the people. They're tracking those, but, you know, a near like I said, they're they're not always near-Earth, but they do have the potential to come near-Earth.
0: Because their orbit, like, yeah, it might be far, far away at some points, but at other points it comes near-Earth. Yeah, because,
1: again, their orbits aren't always stable, and we're plowing around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. So things happen. NASA has identified and cataloged 30,000. Oh my God. NEOs, near Earth objects, yeah. NEOs. Yeah. And by 2011, so there was a mandate that had been given to NASA, I believe at the turn of the 21st century, to identify and catalog all near-Earth objects. And by 2011, they had identified, they believe it's 90% of all NEOs that are one kilometer or greater. Oh, okay. And there's around a 1,000 of those. Wow. So again, we're up in the, the large, potentially catastrophic yeah. asteroids, and they're cataloging them and identifying those.
0: Well, not bad that they're 90% of the way, you know, confident through that you're gonna be like and they're one percent through categorizing it yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> not unless we learn something new in the future that we've been counting wrong or something sure uh, there's a there's another group called space guard which was a term that was uh, again we're back to arthur c Clarke. Uh, he he termed space guard in one of his books so there's a there's a, a division called space guard that's um starting to catalog and and track objects smaller than a kilometer Oh, okay. So we want to know where they all are.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, other than, you know, the existential stre- threat thing, uh, you know, satellites and future space travel, maybe, you know, it's good to know. Why not, right?
1: There's really no such thing as bad knowledge. Yeah. Unless it's incorrect <laughs> knowledge. So yeah. as long as it's good knowledge, then yeah, it's it's good to know. Yeah. Uh, then there's the, the Kuiper Belt. Kuiper Belt or Kuiper, Kuiper Belt. Kuiper Belt. I've heard it called both. Yeah. <laughs> so the Kuiper Belt, Kuiper, Kuiper, we'll call it Kuiper. <laughs> Uh, is a circumstellar disk outside of Neptune's orbit, and it's around 2.7 to 4.5 billion miles from the sun. Now, that's not an estimate of how far away it is. It starts at around 2.7 billion and it ends around 4.5 billion. So it's almost oh 2 billion God. miles wide. 2 billion wide? Hey. <laughs> 2 billion
0: miles wide. Well, it's almost like itself wide, right? So from the distance from the sun, it's... Yeah,
1: exactly. It's, all, it's yeah. almost double the distance to the opposite side. Yeah. Yeah. It's mostly composed of comets. It's so far out, and the heavier objects stayed closer to the sun, while the lighter objects have, at the beginning as the universe was forming, as the, as the solar system was forming, ended up getting pushed further out. So it's almost,
0: as far as we know, all comets and other icy objects. But there's just oceans of water floating, frozen out there.
1: Yeah, now now the the estimates we have minimal data on the Kuiper Belt. Of course, Voyager one, Voyager two have already gone through it mm. and are, are beyond it. But they're they're estimated to be one hundred thousand Kuiper Belt objects that are greater than sixty miles. Wow. A hundred kilometers in diameter. Wow. <laughs> so very large objects. Yeah. We don't think any pose a threat, but yeah, again, it's good to know. Mm-hmm. Then there's the theoretical, know very little about Oort cloud. Mm-hmm. The difference between, say, the main asteroid belt and the Oort cloud is that the Oort cloud is not circumstellar, which means that it's not orbiting on the same plane as the planets.
0: Oh right, it's more of like a giant sphere.
1: It's basically a sphere. Yeah. That that is out there. Now, no direct observations have been made because it's so far out. It is around. 0.3 light years to the beginning of the Oort cloud. Wow. You know, Voyager 1 is on its way out there, and has already gone way outside of Pluto's orbit and in the Kuiper belt, but it's Kuiper belt. <laughs> but it's still billions of miles from, from the beginning of, of the Oort cloud. The thickness of the Oort cloud is estimated to be tens of trillions of miles.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: So basically what we think is that the beginning of the Oort cloud is around 0.3 to 0.4 light years from the sun, while the extent of the Oort cloud is around 2 to 2.2 light years. So a couple light wow. years. Uh-huh. So even though Voyager 1 is billions, as Carl Sagan would say, billions and billions of miles <laughs> from from the from Earth, and traveling at thirty-six to thirty-nine thousand miles per hour, it's going to take it between forty and fifty thousand years before it reaches the Oort cloud.
0: Wow! Who knows? Maybe it'll get lucky too. And once it reaches it, it'll keep going a little bit before it like crashes into something. Yeah,
1: and it might crash into something in, in the Oort that, cloud. But yeah. you know, it might hit something in the Oort cloud. You never know. There's always there's always you know bad luck and. And there's always the myth about you know we can't send objects out too far because getting through the main asteroid belt, there's so many asteroids and we have to fly through it. The fact is, is yeah, there's tens or hundreds of millions of asteroids in the in the main asteroid belt. But it, we were talking about this the other day. The average distance between objects is six hundred thousand miles. You fly right yeah. through it. If you hit something, it's just damn bad luck.
0: Yeah. Well, and if you needed to go, like you know, maybe some sci-fi light speed, super fast, ultra mega travel. I mean, you could probably just go around it, right? Because it's on a spherical disk. It's not like the Oort Cloud.
1: Yeah, if you had if you had a an, a, an energy source that was so plentiful on the ship, some yeah. kind of technology, then you could alter course. But most of the most of our ships and objects, we accelerate beyond Earth. And then you cut the engines and then you just continue to move until you. Otherwise, it takes a lot of energy to do course adjustments. Sure. But you you can do that, you know, hypothetically or theoretically, if you have the energy source, then absolutely you can go over it or below it.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, always just assuming we've got the energy.
1: Now, the interesting one yeah so the, okay so those are the five main known asteroid and comet locations in our in our solar system. Okay. The opposite side of the Oort cloud basically represents the end of the Milky Way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or the end of our solar system, sorry.
0: Yeah. No, I, I knew what you meant. It's kind of like yeah, there's nothing getting back in there or getting back inside from outside of there.
1: Yeah, once yeah. once you're outside of that you're in interstellar space in between, mm-hmm. you know, our solar system and then in the next planetary system which, you know, is 4.6 4.3 light years away. It's so incredible. Yeah. but w- the distance. The interesting one is, so back in 2017, they picked up an object which had never been identified before. Moving at incredible speeds, over 100,000 miles an hour. And on a trajectory that put its origin outside of any known location of asteroids or comets. Hmm. And it's called a muamua. Okay. And a muamua basically, you know, means scout or messenger from afar hmm. uh, in Hawaiian. Hmm. And they caught it kind of last minute, and they had an emergency rush, prioritized all telescope activity to focus on this object. And it's a very strange object. Uh, so it's about three hundred to four hundred meters wide and estimated to be about like 10 to 20 meters. No, it's three to 400 meters long, about 10 to 20 meters wide, or maybe 30 meters wide. Okay, yeah. So it's very much like a cigar shape. Yeah. It was giving off little light pulses, meaning that it's, you know, the way it was spinning, and they were trying to determine, you know, its reflectivity and the type of material it could be. It had a reddish tint to it, which... Means they thought that it had some kind of metal content that you know had bombarded with bombarded with radiation and you know ionized and traveling at 200,000 miles per hour and it was determined that it was the first identified interstellar visitor Whoa. we ever had. Wow! <laughs> and I think they were looking at like the star system Vega, but they're not uh, completely sure that it might have originated there, but figure it's been out to, out there for tens and tens of millions of years just hauling ass through space at 200,000 miles per hour. That's incredible. Shot through our solar system, got sucked into the sun's orbit, slung shot around, and then escaped out, and we'll never see it again. Wow. Now, the interesting thing about it...
0: What's that thing called again? Robert?
1: Amuamua. Amuamua. Yeah. Amuamua. Wild. Okay. <laughs> now, Avi Loeb is um super smart guy. He's great. He's just got a he's got a wit. He's got a sense of humor. Very well-respected but when Amuamua was detected and they started monitoring it, one of the things that caught people off guard is its velocity actually changed. Hmm. They're still not sure why, but during its orbit, its velocity started to gradually change unexpectedly. And it led some people, like Avi Loeb, to claim that there's potential alien technology.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: On this thing. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of people shunned him right away and cut him down, shut him down right away. Oh, sure. And Avi Loeb's point was, you can't do that. This is science. You have to pose the question. You have to come up with a hypothesis and then evaluate it and prove me wrong. But don't just say, no, 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 bud, that's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> but he's not the only one. There's some of his colleagues said the same thing, too. They said there were characteristics of it that were not indicative of our experience with other objects that are within the solar system, mm-hmm. you know, in orbit around orbit around the sun. It's gone now, so it's too late. But yeah, there's a lot of speculation. They're still researching a lot of the data that they that they got from it. But yeah. it 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 really did create an uproar in the uh, the astronomy cosmology community. That's in, amazing. Uh, in physics community for,
0: and they think uh, for that quite may- a few years that they may have come from Vega.
1: Well, that's that, or it's on its way to Vega. I I can't remember now. I I read about Amuamu, when it this was it was discovered in two thousand seventeen. I think it was you know probably twenty twenty when I read about it for the first time, and Mm -hmm. it's been mentioned uh, several times in the um, you know I listened to the Star Talk podcast, and you know it's been brought up a couple times, and that is so cool. And then I was listening to Lex Friedman's podcast. uh, I don't know four or five months ago, and he had Avi Avi Loeb on. They briefly. You know, for five minutes or ten minutes or so, they got into the amumu conversation.
0: Cool, yeah. Well, such a weird shape too. You know, the cigar shape. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, neat. <laughs>
1: and I like Smoke the name Mokum. <laughs> the probabilities, and I hate it when I do that. So I'm going to restart. Okay. I start. I I I start so many sentences with so, and I don't like that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like me trying to correct exactly.
0: <laughs> Or definitely, we're definitely going to do that. <laughs>
1: I started to look up what are the potential impactor, what is the potential energy that could be discharged by an impactor by an asteroid based on its size. Hmm. This is where I end up going down all those rabbit holes I with was telling you about. Yeah, with you know what? Well, the energy is—I mean, the energy. Uh, basically, the you know the calculation it's one half of the mass times the velocity squared. So there's a lot of variables. You know when they talk about an asteroid being one kilometer, yeah, you know, there's no the, there's no fixed scale on how much kinetic energy would be you know released because it would vary depending upon what is the mass of that one kilometer object. Yeah, is that it,
0: depends on the material it's is made it, of. Is it
1: an iron core asteroid or is it just? You know, loosely formed chunk of rocks. Uh, you know, or is it a comet? Because they have different. You know, the 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 mass is significantly different. Mm-hmm. You know, and what it's what's its velocity? What what is its trajectory? But there are rough guidelines that you can get an estimate of. You know where where it would be. That led me down the rabbit hole of how often do these type of objects impact Earth?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I, so how do you tell like what a thing is made out of? It, just by looking at it in the sky, does it flicker a certain way or? I mean, do you know this?
1: Typically, there's spectro- spectrology, spectronomy, but I don't know exactly how they determine it. But I know they they way to come up with estimates of yeah. what they what they believe it is without going out and impacting it or sending something, you know, having some kind of kinetic impactor into it that sends back data yeah. analysis of the material.
0: Yeah. Oh, Cool. Just curious. Mm. That's one
1: of the questions I did not look up before. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs>
0: there you go. <laughs> No.
1: So about every thousand years, so it was just about every year mm-hmm. we get hit with an object that's around one meter in diameter.
2: Oh, okay. Now
1: most of those will explode in the atmosphere. And mm. when they do, it's around one kiloton of energy. So one kiloton of TNT. Mm. And again, for reference, we always reference the Hiroshima Nagasaki bombs. Those were fifteen kilotons. Mm. So a one-meter object would come in, it typically it would vaporize in the atmosphere if it, if it exploded uh, from, you know, heat buildup and pressurization from the inside, it could release potentially one kiloton of energy. Hmm. About every thousand years, we get hit with an object around 50 meters in diameter. Holy shit. If an object, again, depending upon its composition, but if an object is greater than 35 meters then it has a really good chance of surviving its entry into Earth's atmosphere and impacting the planet. Yeah. It it can be devastating if it detonates. You know, if there's an air detonation, it can still be devastating. If it impacts the planet, then it's even more devastating. Hmm. Every thousand years, 50 meter in diameter impact, it's around 10 megatons of TNT. If we go to every 100,000 years... It's around one kilometer in diameter, or just less than one kilometer in diameter impact. And that is enough to trigger a nuclear winner. And then if we get to every 100 million years or so, that is the estimate on the, like the Chicxulub, the greater than 10 kilometers or greater, 100 million megatons of TNT. My God. To put that in reference, the entire world's nuclear arsenal is around a hundred thousand megatons wow it's a thousand times greater than the entire world's nuclear arsenal today wow it's an extinction level cataclysmic event globally yeah and scary
0: so how the heck would we? i mean am i jumping the gun here but how did we combat this stuff
1: yeah no i mean we can get to that it's we're not we're not far from getting there and you know there's it's a little disheartening.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, because we're like, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs>
1: right? <laughs> but there's been a, you know, a few historical impacts that I just wanted to cover, just to give some examples of that, you know, that timeline that I gave of, you know, the dis of the timing between the type of impacts. So
0: we may we need to figure out this uh, cigar shaped amuamua amuamua, uh, yeah, technology. Mm.
1: Yeah, because maybe that was alien technology. Somebody flung it at us and said, here's all your answers. And, yeah, just and just want missed you to it. see this. <laughs> yeah, we missed it.
0: Damn it.
2: <laughs> yeah, they'll be back. <laughs> they never come back.
1: <laughs> the Thea hypothesis. Have you ever
2: heard of that? Thea
0: or Theta? Thea. Thea. No, I couldn't say so.
1: The Thea hypothesis started off on you know, how did our moon form? We have you know a slight tilt, and Earth is you know more pear shaped than it is spherical, and and we discovered with the Apollo missions that you know a lot of the composition of Earth's crust is identical or very similar to the Moon. Hmm. So the hypothesis is that the Moon is actually formed from Earth, hmm. and that. At some point, when Earth was forming around four and a half billion years ago, that we actually collided with roughly a Mars-sized planet. Hmm. It resulted in, of course, a significant amount of debris getting kicked out. Some of that coalesced into the moon. And the Earth and Theia, over you know, the next millions of years, ended up uh, reforming again and becoming Earth as we know it today. Hmm. In South Africa, there's something called the Vredefort Dome. And it was an impact around two billion years ago. Uh, the crater diameter is 115 miles, and it could be the the greatest known single energy release in Earth's history, hmm. next to Theia. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that was kind of that was like ancient history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then there's the Chicxulub crater. You know, it's 66 million years um, 66 million years old. Around a six six mile diameter asteroid, the the crater is somewhere between 100 miles and 186 miles wide. The estimated impact velocity was around 44,000 miles per hour. <sighs> so it's a big chunk of heavy material smacking into the Earth at 44,000 miles per hour. Woo! Uh-huh. Me being stupid and and not thinking, not thinking the whole process through. So you know the Chicxulub crater is off the the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula. There's a village there named Chicxulub, and that was where it was discovered. Mm-hmm. And my perception, mental perception, was. You know, that's what it looked like when the asteroid impacted it 66 million years ago. It was kind of on that, if you look at Mexico, it kind of makes a little hook. Mm. And then yeah. comes back up. It's right at that tip off of Yucatan. But it didn't look anything like that 66 million years ago. Pangaea was still, you know, we had already, the Pangaea had already broken apart, but the continents were still drifting. So oh, yeah. But yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty significant impact. And the, the kinetic energy was estimated around 100 million megatons, which is 100 teratons. Basically, I did the math, 4.5 billion times the bomb we dropped on Hiroshima. Whew. Dear God. Yeah, and uh, what we said earlier is like 75% of all species on Earth yeah, went gone. extinct after that. Now, there's a new one that oh. they've recently discovered in Argentina. They're, they're still studying it. They know that something hit, uh, and it was around 3.3 million years ago the the da- diameter they estimated to be about half a mile, but like I said, it's a recent study, a recent finding, and it's still being studied. But it did have a uh, have enough energy to toss uh, los, which is uh, like a like a mineral. Okay. It fused it into glassy shards and scattered it in a 30-mile radius. So they found wow. this 30-mile ring of glassified LOS. Wow. So that, that do, using that, they could basically determine the, the diameter of the crater and—
0: Reverse-engineer the Yeah, in
1: the center of the impact, and it was somewhere along the coast of, um, uh, of Argentina. It also coincides with around a 2 degree C or roughly 3.6 Fahrenheit drop in ocean temperatures at the same time. Hmm. So they think it may have had a regional impact or global impact, but th- th- it could be coincidental. You know, correlation doesn't equal causation. So they're still looking into that.
0: Mm, gotcha. Dude, some big energy blast <laughs> right there.
1: <laughs> One that you should be aware of is the Beringer crater or meteor crater.
0: Beringer meteor crater.
1: So that's in Arizona oh, and it's uh, around 50,000 years old. And mm-hmm. it's because it's so recent, it's one of the most well-preserved or the well, it's the crater that's in the best shape of all of them that we know of, so. Yeah, so the estimated asteroid diameter was around uh, 50 meters, about 160 feet. Uh, the crater diameter is three quarters of a mile to a mile, and around 560 feet deep. And you can go there today. I mean, it's still perfectly
0: shaped and yeah. formed. And where is it more specifically, like in Arizona? I do you th- know?
1: think it was in the northeastern part of the state. Hmm, sweet. I'm gonna be. What's up there? Flagstaff.
0: Flagstaff's up there. Grand Canyon. Yeah. Is estimated to impact
1: uh, 29 to 44,000 miles per hour. With about a 10 megaton impact, kinetic energy impact.
0: So that's on par with Hiroshima right there.
1: No, 10 megaton, Hiroshima was 15 kilotons. Oh,
0: kilotons. Yeah. Uh Megatons. So it's about, is it 100 times? 600 times. times. Wow. Yeah.
1: About 660 times.
0: Okay, I see.
1: And then there's been some recent impacts that just in the past, well, let's go back. So 1908, there was the Tunguska event. Okay. The Tunguska, Tunguska, Tungusa. So a lot of impacts actually happen over, um, you know, besides the water impacts because, you know, we're mostly water. But um, Russia, because it has such, so you know, it's the world's largest country, most surface area, it's most likely to get impacted. But in 1908, there was roughly a 50 to 65 meter diameter object that was estimated to be around 100 million tons that exploded at some altitude, possibly... Five to ten miles above the surface, but it ended up having an equivalent explosion of around fifteen megatons. Whoa! And it wiped out a. It it basically blew down eighty million trees in a two thousand square kilometer and eight hundred square mile area. Because it was so recent, there there's quite a few. It's it was in the middle of nowhere. Okay. So there, it's around Siberia. But there were people that lived out there. And some of the stories, there was one guy who had given his an account. A reporter had gone out, you know, some months or years afterwards and was studying it. And he was interviewing some of the locals. And there was there was one guy, he was from, it's like 50 or 60 miles away. And he said they, you know, saw the light, everybody, this light in the sky, the streak, and everybody was watching it. And then there was a bright flash on the horizon. And within a few minutes... the ground started to shake and it sounded like artillery going off. He said, and all of a sudden there was a heat wave that he thought that his clothing had caught on fire.
0: Oh my God. Wow.
1: And he was like stripping his shirt off. And when was this? 1908. 1908. Okay. Yeah. He was like 60 miles away. And there was a, a younger boy, I guess it was a teen that um, had given his report. He was a little bit closer around 40 miles and he gave his account gave all of the same basic descriptions of the light in the sky, the bright blinding flash of light, the sound of like multiple pieces of artillery being fired, and then the the ground shaking and then the heat wave. and then he had a they lived in a small hut and it just was completely blown over and he was buried in it. Oh no. Was able to get was able to get himself. Oh, out. Good. I mean, oh yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Of course, to give the account. Yeah. <laughs> wow.
1: If that had happened over a uh, populated area, it would have wiped out everybody, all the structures. Oh yeah. Everything It'd been too super devastating. It would have completely devastated like a London sized city.
0: Whew. I'm glad it didn't.
1: In two thousand thirteen there was Chelyabinsk, which is again in Russia. You can go on YouTube and see the videos of this one. It's quite impressive because hmm. there were people with their with their uh, smartphones.
0: Yeah, and, and this was 2002, you just said? 2013. 13, yeah. Okay, now now we're talking because I remember this one.
1: Yeah, it was the one where they were tracking it through the sky and all of a sudden it just exploded. Yeah,
0: that one was a crazy cosmic one with me because um, when that was happening, I didn't know this was happening, but uh, Holly and I, my partner, um, we were just on a, like one of our first dates and was, she drew a little picture for me it was like you know wish upon the star and I made a wish and then we see in the news this giant meteor in the sky and I'm like oh I wished upon that star yeah you know <laughs> yeah you're riding the wrong star <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> it yeah it exploded when it was 12 to 18 miles above the surface it was around 500 kilotons wow so that's, again, I mean, we go back to you know, Hiroshima, that's 36 Hiroshima bombs. And it, again, it was 12 to 18 miles above the surface. It injured 1,500 people and it damaged over 7,000 buildings. Oh, my. Interestingly enough, most of the people were injured basically because of the delay between the speed of light and the speed of sound. Because there was a huge explosion. It was a super bright flash that went off in the sky. Everybody jumped up from their desks or they were at their house and ran to the windows to see what happened. And then several seconds later, the shock wave came and through and the- just shattered all the windows. Oh. So the 1,500 people that were injured were primarily from flying glass and oh, debris.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. So if you see the flash of light, you go to the center of the building. Get under your desk. See,
1: they... Were way too young or way too, yeah. Yeah. To do the duck knew? and cover. Yeah.
0: No, yeah. You see a bright flash, you're going to the things, so you're looking for the mushroom cloud, you know, <laughs> like not expecting it to be, well, deep impact. Um, <clears throat>
1: yeah. And again, we can just, I don't want to spend too much time. I, did a lot of tables and, um, you know, studies that, as I said, there's no typical impact because there's too many variables associated with it. But yeah, there was a, there's an engineer in Sydney, Australia um, named Michael Payne that studies this. And he kind of just did a, you know, tried to speculate on, you know, what would the average be for like a one kiloton, a, a two kiloton, or um, sorry, a one kilometer wide, a two kilometer wide and a 10 kilometer wide uh, asteroid impact. We mentioned that there were a couple million uh, one-kilometer asteroids, for example, in the main asteroid belt. So a one-kilometer asteroid impacting Earth is going to have a fireball radius for a few seconds of around 150 kilometers. Hmm. It's 90 miles. Yeah, it's big. That's the fireball. That's going to destroy, you know, all buildings and structures and trees and everything in that, in that radius. Um, or the, now for trees to be damaged and windows to be shattered, it goes out to 180 miles.
0: But the people will be okay, right?
1: Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. The, the firestorm, you know, ignition will be local, regional earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, It'll have, you know, regional freezing, cooling for weeks at a time. Man. Acid rain will be regional for several months. Ozone destruction will be partial and will last for a couple years. And greenhouse heating would basically be negligible. And, you know, we could expect, like, this to have an impact on plant growth or extinctions for Maybe a few months on plants and negligible on extinctions. And this is on a one kilometer? It's a one kilometer. One kilometer, yeah. yeah. That jumps up to 10 kilometers. The fireball radius is 1,800 kilometers. That's over 1,000 miles. Whew. Trees being blown down, uh, windows being shattered out to 2400 miles that's incredible firestorm ignition would be global and this is one of the things that occurred with the dinosaurs is this super hot debris gets ejected up in the atmosphere circles the globe or earth's gravity impacts it it ends up circling the earth and then you have all of these molten hot burning pieces of rock and debris falling down uh, all around the globe yeah wow Yeah, Spooky. (laughs) You would have global earthquakes, hurricanes, and tsunamis. The cooling would be severe and global for years. So with the acid rain, the ozone would be totally destroyed for decades. You would have greenhouse heating, which would be severe for
0: centuries. And that would
1: be global extinction-level events.
0: So how do we sing a different song? You know, how do we get the the asteroids... Once they're identified, to just go away, leave us alone, you know. The, the
1: positive news is that there are currently no known threats, and I, I yeah. put "known" in bold and underlined yeah, in my right. notes because yeah. it's, we didn't know about a mu either. It just appeared out of nowhere.
0: Sure. And yeah. we
1: didn't detect it till it was already about to enter, you know, get slung slingshotted around the sun. Uh, so for the next hundred years, with everything that we are tracking, there are no known threats. Although there is a very large population of asteroids in our solar system, but still, researchers will tell you it's, it's, a, it's a matter of when, not if, we will be impacted uh, yeah. uh, the next time. Hmm. So the biggest threat that we've identified is an asteroid called Apophis. So more specifically, it's 99942 Apophis. And it was discovered in 2004. It has a diameter of approximately 370 meters, so just under a quarter mile. And if we wanted to do the, you know, if I go back to my notes and looked up what 370 meters would do if it impacted us, you're probably talking thousands of megatons of kinetic energy. Mm -hmm. So it would be a global event. It weighs 88 billion pounds and is traveling at 69,000 miles per hour. You know, shortly after it was discovered... And they started tracking it. They gave it a around a two point seven to three and a half percent chance of impacting Earth in the year 2029. It's going to pass Earth in April of 2029, but they now know it's going to pass less than twenty thousand miles from us. Wow! To put that in perspective, it's going to come closer than five hundred geostationary satellites that we have in our orbit. That's it will so come crazy. in between so us feel- and some of our own satellites. Uh,
0: w- I mean, if we're on the right side of the planet, you'll be able to see that.
1: You will. (laughs) Yeah, there'll there'll be people tracking it uh, as it comes through. And, you know, in some areas it'll be uh, visible to the naked eye or with, you know, a pair of binoculars. Yeah. It's 10 times closer to us than the moon. Yeah, wow. So you can see why this caused quite a scare in 2004, 2005. Sure, and
0: it's going to miss the moon, right? Yeah, It's not going to, like, knock the moon out of—or it knocks the moon into us? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not that big, but yeah.
1: (laughs) It's going—in April 2116, it's going to come back uh, a few times. I think, you know, they estimated, like, in 2040-something, and then 2069, it's going to be, you know, slightly further away than that. And in 2116, so just under 100 years from now, it'll possibly come as close as 75,000 miles if its trajectory doesn't change. And this is one of the concerns is, you know, trying to track all these obje- objects and their orbits, you know, as computers that we have get more and more powerful, you can start to put all these into play in a, in a simulation. But if something did happen to it, like say it Swung really close to another asteroid and its trajectory
0: slightly changed. Then you gotta redo all that, uh, all those calculations.
1: You'd have to redo the calculations. Uh, There's another one, it's it's not really a concern, it's just scary. So, in 2031, there's a comet Bernardinelli Bernstein, which is going to come within 900 million miles of Earth. Scary thing about that is it's 74 miles wide. Whoa, so it's huge. Uh, but, you know, we we survived that. It's not going to come back for another four and a half million years. Um, the impact on something like that, though, would be a thousand times the Chicxulub event. Yeah. Or thousands of times.
0: Well, it's so wild, too, to think of, like, a comet made of frozen ice, you know, if it, would it even, I mean, a super huge one, one thing, but one that's like 10 kilometers wide, say, for example, you know, would the atmosphere be enough to melt it and vaporize it before it even would impact a comet
1: us? no yeah no Now there's a comet impact so a 10 kilometer wide comet would have quite a bit less of an impact than a 10 kilometer wide asteroid and a typical rocky asteroid the mass is two to three grams per square centimeter per centimeter cubed our comet is around 0.6 grams per centimeter cubed significantly less mass mm-hmm. but still at that size you know in some of it will melt off and will break off, um, unlike a lot of asteroids, especially if it's like an Iron Core asteroid. It, the impact won't be as bad, but it could be globally devastating if it's, mm. you know, the both objects are 10 kilometers coming in.
0: Yeah, it's, it's still pretty big.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Now, we said that there, you know, I mentioned earlier that there are multiple government agencies and private organizations that are um, catalog, uh, indexing, and tracking a lot of these a lot of the asteroids yeah. and our 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 catalog is growing more and more every year uh, but you know they started to look at different ways that we could avoid an impact mm-hmm. with an asteroid the larger the impactor the more time we would need to detect and and implement a mitigation plan mm-hmm. to avoid impact that makes sense Yeah, so NASA has indicated that if they wanted to do something today, say we discovered something, they would need at least five years warning to prepare and launch a mission. Wow. If the avoidance system was in place, so say we already had some kind of technique Mm -hmm. to to deflect the asteroids, we would still need a warning of at least uh, a year or longer, depending upon the size of the impactor. Wow. Just because the larger it is, the more difficult it is to either destroy or deflect. Mm -hmm. So there there are two types of avoidance methods. There's direct avoidance methods and indirect avoidance methods. The direct avoidance methods consist of like nuclear weapons and kinetic impactors. Mm -hmm. Those are the preferred method because they cost less with regards to both time and money. And they, they would either fragment the object so that the pieces burn up in the atmosphere or delay it enough so that Earth's surface doesn't reach the same point in its orbital path as the impactor.
0: Ah, uh, yes. So that Earth essentially gets a chance to get out from under it
1: it's scooting along at sixty-seven thousand miles per hour yeah we just want to delay it a little bit to Mm. to let us shoot through the red light
0: Mm, cool (laughs) something hey it's something yeah
1: yeah now i i had said that most neos are you know they're loose rubble piles fragmenting them has potential dangers because any object that's greater than 35 meters that enters our atmosphere is most likely going to impact the surface It's preferred to have multiple smaller objects hitting the planet than one large object. But kinetic energy is kinetic energy. And if you had 10, 35-meter objects hitting the surface, it's still going to cause a global event.
0: Yeah, so ideally, you know, don't want any of them to.
1: (laughs) No. And you know the, the other indirect avoidance methods which are being looked at are like gravity tractors. You get a large enough spacecraft, it's going to have its own gravity. Hmm. You put that in a path just off to the side of the asteroid, and it would influence the trajectory of the asteroid over like a period kind of, of time. Bend it. it would kind of bend it. But you'd have to path.
0: fly the thing out there first.
1: And yeah, and then you have to do, just like we talked about in our sci-fi science episode, you're going to have to do a flip and burn.
0: A flip and burn. So that's why it would take five years. And
1: why it's a lot more expensive. Yeah, because it requires a lot more fuel it's a much larger spacecraft it takes time to travel to there and then turn around and then to travel back and influence its path Mm -hmm. and there's also attaching you know possibly attaching rockets to it or i've listened to one podcast where they were talking about the possibility of like a solar sail Mm -hmm. on an asteroid
0: you know five years though like i mean that's a long period of time so like is that even realistic to be able to prevent a thing just yet like say if an asteroid came from the um the the, the asteroid belt like the, the closest one to earth yeah i mean like depending on its velocity and stuff of course you know i mean but like we'll say like an average velocity of i i, I wouldn't even know what to pull out of my ass but um you know like Well, Five years just seems like such a long time. (laughs) It is. And if we
1: think about it, just if something's traveling at, you know, roughly 50,000 miles per hour through space. Yeah. If you detect it at 100 million miles, which is, again, getting right at the main asteroid belt. So you detect at 100 million miles that it is on a collision course with Earth. That's roughly three months to impact.
0: Jesus. Yeah. So, yeah, got to update these uh, plans a little bit.
1: Yeah, if you you know if you catch it at a billion miles, that's around two years to impact. Wow! At that you know roughly fifty thousand miles per hour uh, speed, if if you if you can impact or influence its trajectory by say one degree, mm-hmm. which doesn't seem like much, but it adds up. It adds up over time. If you can deflect an object a billion miles away by one degree, if it had previously been on a course to impact Earth that one-degree deflection would mean it would miss Earth by around 17 million miles. Wow. Yeah. So it's good enough. Yeah. We live to see see another day. Uh, Gosh. If you catch it at 10 million miles and you can deflect it by one degree, then that drops to 174,000 miles. That's closer than um, the moon. Mm Mm-hmm. It, it's getting a little scary at that yeah, point. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. If you deflect it at a million miles, so say the first mission you send up gets up there, something breaks, it doesn't work, you got to send up a second mission, and you finally at a million miles, it's going to skirt by Earth at 17 million, uh, 17,000 miles. Oh,
0: my God. <laughs>
1: and again, we were talking about Apophis is coming probably around 19,000, 18,000 miles, so it would actually come closer to that. It's so, a
2: close shave.
1: Yeah, now there was a project in 1967. Uh, Paul Sandorf at MIT um, it's called Project Icarus, and he had his grad students. Uh, he gave them so there was there was a, a an asteroid um, 1566 Icarus, which is around a one kilometer wide asteroid uh, that had been discovered, and they realized it wasn't going to impact Earth. But he gave his grad students uh, the project of how to come up to def- come up with a methodology for deflecting it if it was going to impact Earth. Yeah. And they concluded that with 73 days remaining before impact, that if they had six to seven hypothetical 100 megaton warheads, they could detonate those in sequence. So like one, you know, in 60 days, one in 50, one in, you know, they could detonate that in sequence within 100 feet of the asteroid's surface and it had a high chance of success. Now... Obviously, it was never tested, you know, we never yeah. launched 100, <laughs> you know, and you, thankfully, because as 1967, if, you know, if we'd even had 100 megaton warheads, and they had detonated it, whatever they budged would probably be heading right back for us now. <laughs> so, and there, there isn't, but so, you know, even though it was hypothetical, it was never tested, it actually did launch a lot of research in the future over, uh, you know, what could be done to it was kind of the catalyst in getting us to look at potential impact avoidance um, techniques.
2: Yeah,
0: sounds like a cool video game or something it does. Yeah.
1: <laughs> tell you another one that's really cool. So in I think it was November of last year in 2021, NASA launched its DART mission. And the DART is a double asteroid redirection test. And this is so it's Didymos and Dimorphos, and these are two asteroids. Actually, Didymos is the is the main asteroid. Dimorphos is a companion asteroid. It's so, a companion moon. Cool. It's orbiting, and I'm probably saying it's probably Didymos and Dimorphos, but Didymos is easier to say. It reminds me of Diddy Kong.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Diddy did it.
0: Diddy did it.
1: <laughs> so they're they're not in any danger of hitting Earth. Um, they're just kind of out there. Uh, Didymos, the main asteroid, is about a half a, meter, half a mile in diameter, so it's a big one. Dimorphos is still big, but it's only around 160 meters in diameter. So what the mission is doing is it takes it takes Dimorphos just under 12 hours, so like 11 hours and 55 minutes to orbit Didymos. What they're doing is they send up the DART satellite, and it's a kinetic impactor, and basically it is going to accelerate like hell, and slam headlong into Didymos. Neat. So, countering its orbital path. The goal, it's going to have an estimated mass of around 1,200 pounds when it hits. Uh, Dimorphous is estimated to be around 10 billion pounds. So, you have a 1,200-pound object slamming into a 10-billion-pound object. And this is going to happen around 6.7 million miles for Earth, from Earth. So, there's, they're going to be able to observe it. Cool. It, so, the goal is to try to slow down Didy Moss's orbit or Dimorphus's orbit by uh, several minutes. Okay. And if they can do that because the orbit orbital speed would slow down, it would actually get closer to Dimorphus. <laughs> May not collapse into it, but its orbit will get closer. But it this will the once it's once you know they they evaluate the impact and how much of an influence we had on a 10 billion pound object, we can use that data then to calculate what would be necessary in the future to maybe impact larger objects. And by how much of a degree could we change their trajectory?
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. It is cool. The,
1: the scary thing to all of this, though, is, again, in our lifetime, it's very unlikely that we're at threats from uh, asteroids. But you know, an asteroid impact is one of those low-risk, high threat. Type of situations. Yeah. So we want to be aware of it. We want to, and we know at some point in time in our planet's future, we will have to face that risk. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of when. Again, it's not if, it's when. There's not a lot being done about it. That's the disheartening part. Oh, sure. Yeah. In 19, during the space race, so around 66, 67, 68, somewhere around there, NASA's budget was 4.4% of our gross domestic product. And we were pumping all kind of money into NASA. Yeah, I mean, we went from from the Earth to the Moon from you know 1960, and then just within a decade, you know, we're landing on the Moon. Yeah, and that was because a buttload of money got poured into the project. Yeah, the budget for NASA today is 24 billion dollars, which is 0.4 percent of our GDP. Yeah, so uh, and it's. Peak of 4.4% of our GDP, it's been slowly declining every year now to around where it's 0.4%. Wow. It's shrinking continuously. NASA's budget for near-Earth object detection and defense is $150 million. Oh, wow. That's it. That's
0: not much. <laughs>
1: every year? I mean, yeah. globally. $81 billion is spent oh on ice cream. Oh, my God. <laughs> we spend $150 million on the objective. So near we could Earth just cut ice incident. cream
0: from our diets and invest it into space. We could. We got nothing to worry about. Yeah. Cut, <laughs>
1: I cut ice cream out of my diet, so I'll contribute to that. I think I just started putting
0: it back in my diet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So that's that's it on asteroids. So you know so they are an existential risk and they will continue to be an existential risk. Yeah. We have time. It doesn't matter how much time we have if we don't do anything in that time. Right. To yeah. to mitigate the risk.
0: Yeah, well we got to focus on, you know, the planet too. You know, just that existential threat of just climate change and everything. Well, yeah,
1: sure. I mean, we could end up wiping ourselves out as a species long
0: before the asteroid gets God, here. God, I hope so. not. You know, <laughs> who knows? Maybe there's some sort of setup where, like, oh, Earth's getting a little too warm. Yep, yeah, better send another ice cube. <laughs> yeah, the seventy-four mile wide <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bernarda Deli Bernstein. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sources
1: I had for that one: the ubiquitous, ubiquitous NASA.gov. I spent a lot of time mm. on NASA's website. Heck yeah. Smithsonian Magazine. One in the University of Arizona, the Lunar and Planetary Labrador- the Laboratory. At,
0: oh, cool. At, Heck, yeah. Yeah, in Tucson. Yeah, they got a good facility out there.
1: Yeah, astronomynotes.com, uh, the Planetary and Space Science Center, the Scientific American, sciencedirect.com, and unesco.com. Excellent. Uh, sources for our show.
0: Heck, yeah. Yeah, thanks for listening.
1: Yeah, thanks for listening, and if you have any, again, questions and comments, please uh, you know, reach out to Chris and I at debate at irrationaldiscourse.com, or you can go to our website.
0: We'd love to hear from you. That's all I got on asteroids. Cool, man. Yeah, that was pretty fun.
1: All right. Well, the next one, we'll, we'll get into artificial intelligence. I think that will be fun,
0: too. Heck, yeah. <laughs> so
1: we'll get out of it. We'll get, you know, we we did nuclear weapons. We've done asteroids. So we'll get away from nuclear winter and uh, go into something a little bit more science fiction-y. It'll be more fun. <laughs> It'll be more fun. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll, we'll see you in our next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Irrational Discourse podcast. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can send us an email at debate at irrationaldiscourse.com. Or you can contact us directly through our website at www.irrationaldiscourse.com. Please include your name and location if you'd like a shout out for your contribution. We only ask for, and strive to give in return, a little love, acceptance, and mutual respect.